Chapter Twenty of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Twenty. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Mr. Merrill did not go to the Thursday evening prayer meeting as he had intended. When the Sabbath came, he even thought he would not go to church. What's the use? he asked himself wearily. In truth, he was almost worn out with this long struggle with his own heart, which he did not in the least understand. Mr. Tresevant had missed him from the prayer meeting, had been surprised at first, had half formed the resolution to go the very next morning and call on him. In fact, he had intended to do so, but in a multitude of engagements it had slipped his mind. And when he next thought of the young man it was Saturday, and he was very busy, and some way he did not feel as much inclined to go as he had before so he sat in his study and excused himself with a soliloquy like this. I certainly cannot be expected to run after the young man on Saturday. That is a day devoted to a minister's own private use. Everybody ought to understand that. Besides, I haven't finished my sermon. It might have been done if Mrs. Arnold had not driven twice as far yesterday as she engaged to do, and then kept us waiting supper until nearly midnight. Besides, I have to go out to tea again this evening." it is quite impossible to make any calls. That young man's impressions, I fear, were very evanescent. Impressions are apt to be that are built on such a sandy foundation. I presume he fancied himself specially interested in Miss Del Bronson, and mistook his interest in her for a desire after higher things. Young gentlemen are apt to make such mistakes. His experience was not very satisfactory, if I remember aright. Ah, well, poor fellow, I wish he had been more interested in the subject, instead of probably expending his enthusiasm on the person who urged it upon his attention. At a very inopportune time, I presume, too. People generally do. Well, if he comes to church tomorrow, this sermon may be able to reach his case. Thus was Mr. Merrill's case dismissed from his pastor's mind. He, meantime, had lounged away the entire morning of the Sabbath in miserable indecision on the question of going to church. He had not decided that the whole thing was a humbug. People with fathers and mothers who have been earnest, faithful, conscientious Christians rarely come to such conclusions. Instead, he was in danger of that other equally fatal blunder, of deciding that such things were not for him, that there were those who were not called into this way, and for them there was no help. No use in going to church, he said moodily, and in dressing gown and slippers he lolled in his easy chair but the bell tolled and tolled. He tried to drown its voice with the morning paper, no use. Instead of reading, he counted the strokes of the bell, and wondered if that intolerable sexton was going to ding-dong all day. He tumbled over the pile of papers before him in search of yesterday's daily, and strove to become interested in the price's current. But not so had the father who had gone to heaven taught him to reverence the Sabbath there was no use in trying to turn away from those early teachings. Finally, as the bell tolled on and on, he sprang up impatiently, reached after his boots, kicked away his slippers, and presently, with a muttered sentence that he believed he was a fool for his pains, made his way speedily downtown and mingled with the worshippers just entering the Regent Street Church. Very few crumbs fell to his share from the sermon that day. He was not in the mood for intellectual feasting and Mr. Tresevant's sermon was one well calculated to feed the intellect. But the singing and the Bible reading, yes, the very walls of the church, 
helped to awaken in his heart that aching sense of some yearning unsatisfied that had possessed him during the week. He went out from the sanctuary with a heavy heart, and it was the same heavy heart, the same unsatisfied longing, that took him out later in the day to wander aimlessly down the quiet street. That is, so far as his own purposes were concerned, the wandering was aimless. But the eye of God saw every footstep, and directed that they should halt before the Harvard Street Mission Building, just as the scholars and teachers were singing, safe in the arms of Jesus. The melody floating out to him sounded wonderfully sweet, and still following that aimless purpose, or else the guidance of that all-seeing eye, he pushed open the door, and because the first seat at the left was vacant, was the reason why Mr. Merrill sat directly behind Jim Forbes and his class that afternoon. At least, he thought that was the reason. A very rough-looking company had Jim Forbes gathered about him. Mill boys, every one of them restless, wriggling scamps, who looked as though to sit still and behave respectively were impossibilities. Yet, after all, there was not one among their number who looked so hopelessly forlorn as Jim Forbes could remember himself to have looked on that Sabbath not so many years ago when he first became a pupil of Del Bronson. Jim knew all about it, but Mr. Merrill had no conception of any such state of existence. Instead, he looked upon the finely formed, strongly built, neatly dressed man before him, and said to himself, "'That's a fine-looking fellow. What a set of ragamuffins he has about him. How does he manage them, I wonder?' and then he set himself about discovering how this was done. A thing not so easy to do, for really after the lesson was fairly commenced, the management, if there was any, was carried on invisibly. The vagabonds actually seemed to be interested. They asked questions and expressed their views with a heartiness and freedom that would have startled and shocked many a teacher less familiar with their type of human nature. "'How do you happen to understand them so well, Forbes?' Mr. Sales, the superintendent, had asked him one Sabbath after the class had dispersed. "'I've been there myself, sir,' Forbes had answered, with a sort of grimness of tone, and yet with a happy smile. The tone in memory of that dark and desolate past, the smile in token of the fact that he was there no more. When the lesson closed, the bell struck for the five minutes of personal work. Mr. Merrill did not understand what this meant, and looked on curiously. It meant simply that the teacher who had some special thought to impress upon his entire class took this opportunity for such work, or the teacher who had a word of private conversation with any member of his class had, if he were a skillful teacher, so managed matters that that particular scholar occupied the seat beside himself, somewhat isolated from the rest of the class. This five minutes was understood by all the pupils as being solemn time, and it was a matter of honor with all not being personally addressed to sit with eyes fixed on their open Bibles. There was a certain Johnny Thompson with whom Jim Forbes was anxious to have a word that day, and Johnny occupied the seat beside him and precisely in front of Mr. Merrill. That gentleman looked on in surprise to see the five ragamuffins gravely and decorously open their Bibles. Presently, however, his attention was arrested by the voices directly before him. "'Now, Johnny, what have you to tell me?' "'Nothing very nice,' Johnny said, looking down forlornly at the toes gaping through his worn boot. "'I've tried all the week, prayed a lot, read the Bible a lot more, but taint of any use. I'm exactly the same old fellow I always was.' Mr. Merrill was startled and brought suddenly back to his own weary experience. Here it was precisely— 
told perhaps in more homely language than he would have expressed it, but the very same story. I know all about it, his teacher said, impressively. I did just so. Now, Johnny, we haven't much time, so you just answer me two or three questions, will you? You honestly want to be a Christian, don't you? Yes, I do. There was no doubting the emphasis. You believe that Jesus Christ can take care of you, don't you? Course he can, said Johnny, not in rudeness, but with quiet positiveness. Well, then, don't you think it's about time you let him? I don't know what you mean. Don't you? Why, you see, you've been all the week waiting for him to make you into a different fellow. You've prayed a lot, you say. You've read your Bible. And then you have waited for Jesus to come and show you what a wonderful boy you have got to be. You wouldn't treat Mr. Sales so, would you? Suppose you loved Mr. Sales very much. Us fellows all do, interpolated Johnny. I know it. You have reason to. Now we'll say you want to prove it. You believe he thinks a great deal of you, and you want to do just as he says. He has given you plain rules to follow, but instead of following them, going about the work that he wants done, you sit down tomorrow in a dark corner of the mill, and you fold your hands and say, I ought to be a different fellow. I want to be. I want to do just as Mr. Sales tells me to. I think a great deal of him. I want to work for him. All the time, mind you, you are sitting with your hands folded during working hours. Do you suppose if Mr. Sales should come along, and you should begin to tell him how much you thought of him, and how ready you were to do anything just as he said, that he would believe you were in earnest while you sat there wasting his time? That Johnny understood this figure was evident from his earnestly put question. What had I ought to do? Everything that Jesus gives you to do. Don't wait for him to make you into a different boy. He may not choose to show you how different you are, but he'll give you something to do, there's no doubt about that. Give you something to bear, most likely, for his sake. Very likely he wants you to show the boys who work next to you that you can get along without being mad when they plague you, that you can keep from throwing mud at Tommy Green when he throws mud at you, and in all these ways you will discover what a different fellow you are. The superintendent's bell rang, and all conversation instantly ceased. Jim Forbes sat back with folded arms, and during Mr. Sale's questions wondered somewhat sadly if he had made the matter any plainer to Johnny. His teaching seemed to him, to use his favorite phrase, a muddle. He knew what he wanted to say, but he never seemed to himself to be successful in saying it. However, he resolved upon taking home some of his own advice. He would work as well as talk. He would keep an eye on Johnny during the week. He would perhaps be able to show him little things that Christ would have him do to prove the love in his heart. Meantime, into the heart of the young man sitting within the sound of Jim's humble teachings, there had burst a great flood of light. As in a glass, he saw his own picture reflected. This, then, was what he had been doing. Praying, reading his Bible, then sitting with folded hands waiting for Christ to show him how different he was not willing, as this young man had said, to let Jesus take care of him, but determined to be shown just how wonderful that care and love were, resolved upon not taking another step until the master had signified his joy over such weak and feeble efforts as had been made. Duties? Plenty of them! And he had shirked them all, covering up his delinquencies with the miserable plea that he didn't feel any different, that it was all darkness, that, in short, as Johnny had expressed it, he was the same old fellow still. 
Very distinctly he realized that he had expected to be taken almost bodily and lifted up to some green and flowery mount, where it would be a delight to step, and where every breath would be fragrant with peace. For all this he had waited, waited and given no token of decision, of change of purpose, change of aims. Nay, there had been no decision, he realized that also. He had simply waited. Twenty-six years of utter indifference to this entire subject, five or six days of restlessness and unhappiness, a half-formed resolve, and then the looking for and expecting a sudden and entire revolution of his nature, and because he did not feel it a sudden revulsion of feeling, an indignant resolve to give the whole matter up, a vague feeling that in some way he had been wronged, and that as a sort of revenge he would have nothing more to do with this matter. Such he felt was the story of his life, and great shame and humiliation overwhelmed him as he saw his own strange, unreasonable conduct. Those who knew Mr. Merrill and wondered at his presence in the school, wondered also at the rich full tones with which he joined in the closing hymn, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. They would have wondered still more could they have looked into his heart and seen the solemn resolve that accompanied the words of consecration. Straight home from the Harvard Street mission went Mr. Merrill, home and to his own room, locked his door, knelt beside the chair where he had so listlessly lounged but a few hours before, and in solemn, deliberate tones said, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thou bidst me come to thee. O Christ, I come. Henceforth give me darkness or light, joy or disquietude, only accept my service, and direct my steps anywhere that thou wouldst have me go. Long he knelt there, but his prayer, sometimes voiceless, sometimes finding utterance, was simply a repetition of this act of entire self-surrender, without counting the cost or groping about for an immediate crown. And yet it came, came as it often does, suddenly, unexpectedly, that crown of joy. He felt it thrill every nerve of his newborn soul. I wish, he said, moving about the room with that strange thrill of gladness pervading him, I wish I could tell Johnny how it is, that the Lord takes care of us just as soon as we will let him, and gives us the fullness of his love besides. He went to the Regent Street prayer meeting that evening. It was held for half an hour before church service. He found some work to do there. It was only to repeat again those lines that were so wonderful to him, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. But Mr. Merrill will never know, until it is revealed to him in the light of a blessed eternity, how powerful for good were those simple lines that he repeated in prayer meeting that evening. Mr. Tresevant walked the floor of his study after service that evening in a tremor of satisfaction. I knew, he said to himself exultingly, that that sermon would reach his case, he has a very brilliant intellect. End of chapter 20 Recording by Tricia G.